Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. I've heard a few very, very bad ideas for motivational speeches over the years. But Diego Maradona requesting a meeting with an already way too highly strung bunch of Argentinian footballers ahead of a do-or-die World Cup group game might just be the very worst. <laughs> yeah, that seemed like a bad idea from the second I read about it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to your Monday Hate of the Second Captain's Podcast. Hi, Murph. Hello. Argentina playing Nigeria tomorrow night for a place in the last 16, racked with fear after their collapse against Croatia. Into this incredibly delicate team environment, Diego feels he should step with a bunch of other Argentinian football legends in tow. I'd love to hold a meeting with the team, with Neri Pumpadu, Sergio Goicochea, Claudio Canigia, Pedro Trollio, even with Daniel Passarella if he wants to come, and George Valdano, Maradona told Venezuelan TV. Could you imagine this group of men arriving into the setup? To put some manners on the Argentine players now, against Nigeria. In my day, lads. Yeah. Oh, all of them jump out the window. This is the equivalent of Larry Tompkins getting the hump with Cork, the current team, after hamming by Kerry in the Munster final. Marching in there with Colin Corkery. Mm-hmm. Who else? Billy Morgan. Now, see, this seems to me like actually a pretty good idea. To explain to the boys... Just to explain to the boys how much it means to wear that red jersey. Yeah. There would certainly be some passion. There'd be some fire and passion in that room. Mm. I think, uh, you know, the carrot, the stick, all of these approaches have been used with the Cork footballers, but Saturday night was was low. My Cork. a serious low point. And Oshin McConville are ready to chat about the three provincial football finals from the weekend. Three landslide victories as it happens. And we've Shane Horgan on Ireland's win in Australia and also the return to Leinster rugby of a familiar old face. As for today's World Cup podcast, that's out now. We previewed the Argentina Argentina, Nigeria game that I mentioned. We also had Rafa Honigstein on the wider significance of the Tony Kroos winner against Sweden and Ken's report from England's trouncing of Panama, which was as thought-provoking as always, but as our World Service members well know by now, Ken's actual match reporting is only part of the appeal of these World Cup pods. Sign up for the match reports, stay for the world-renowned Ken Early travelogues. It was totally insane. Jesus Christ, oh my God, it's coming back to me now. Oh my God. What happened? After the game, I came back on the, the metro from the stadium to Nevsky Prospect. It was like basically Russian Arthur's Day. Uh, they're all beating your horns. They like rev their engines. You've got terror of death. You think you're going to die. Loads of people had these balloons of what I assumed was laughing gas. Hippie crack. Raheem Sterling hippie crack. I'm sorely tempted. I was like, I really should try that. What happens if I fall over and hit my head? And then, I, I watched as a girl took a great big <laughs> out of this balloon, right? <laughs> out of this balloon. And so I was, I was sort of giggling. And then just eyes rolled back in the head and she just fell backwards like poof. A couple of minutes after that, so this time a man, probably 30-ish, pitched forward onto his face. I thought, oh my God, I can't believe this doesn't happen again. Smashed down onto concrete with his chin. He'll never chew normally again. Gonna be half dead. But in fact, again, he was all right. Old titanium jaw. 
What a night. What a city. What an adventure for the host nation. What an adventure indeed. Ken's currently on a train from Nizhny Novgorod to Moscow. So there may be a few adventures on that one. It might be material for a travelogue tomorrow if I know Eric Ken. Like I think I do. So there's a 97% chance something ridiculous will have happened. You can sign up on secondcaptains.com for a fiver a month. And a big thanks to the many people who have become members for our World Cup coverage. It's been a blast so far. I'm sure it will continue to be. Has he tried the laughing gas yet, do we know? Uh, I haven't heard, Owen, so I'm just going to presume that, yeah, he probably gave it a rattle over the weekend. Why not? Three provincial football finals at the weekend and three landslides, really. The average winning margin was nearly 16 points as Cork, Leash and Fermanagh played the Panama role to Kerry, Dublin <laughs> and Donegal's England. We've got Mike Quirk. Hi, Mike. Hey, Owen. How's it going? Ah, pretty good, yeah. And O'Sheen, how are Owen, you? how's things? Uh, not too bad now. Before we get into the football, uh, we're going to start with the heavy political stuff because there was a certain guest of honour at the Ulster final, Arlene Foster's appearance in Clonus yesterday. The first time a DUP leader has attended an Ulster final and she appeared to get a pretty good reception. No, she got a brilliant, re- <laughs> she got a brilliant reception. One of the things about uh, that people need to understand about, you know, just how big that was yesterday, like I don't think, you know, I think the Catholic community um, in the North has, done, has you know, uh, has brokered a lot of things over the last number of years, including meeting the Queen and that, and I think it was going to take something uh, massive um, from the Protestant community to sort of um, even even it up or, you know, um, to tip the balance again. Um, the, the political situation in the North is in ta- tatters at the mm-hmm. minute. Um, the health system, um, the councils, it, it's all in disarray. There's no budgets for... Um, for healthcare trusts, um, it really is a a political a political mess, um, an economical mess as well, and it's unbelievable how big a step that was yesterday. Because when I seen Rory Gallagher and the Fermanagh team meeting Arlene Foster, I thought to myself, that's an easy out. You know, it's an easy out for Arlene Foster to, to meet them off-site. They, they met uh, at the Lock Iron. But for her to turn up yesterday, which I didn't think would happen, uh, was massive. And I'm glad that she got the reception that she got. And when her, fo- when her picture went up on the, uh, on the big screen, uh, there was a little small bit of... Right. Uh, there was, an, there was a, a millisecond where I thought, here we go. Yeah. But no, there was a there was a very very small section that might have ha- thought that they were going to get a boo going, but a lot of people are you know I could see a lot of people on the hill who are usually there. Uh, let me let me pick pick the phrase <laughs> quite charged up uh, before the game, uh, alcohol wise, and and you know I could see a lot of them around there. They were clapping, uh, and I know you know we sort of make a joke of it, but you know it is. Pretty momentum's this pretty big. I do a, a column for a paper in the north every every week, every Sunday, and it's um, I suppose uh, it's probably fair to say that it's it's probably a 50, pretty fifty fifty paper as far mm. as uh, who who who'd be buying it. Um, and I attended the Frampton fight. I might even told you this a number of years ago, and it, I it wasn't just a sporting event. And um, when he fought in the Titanic, it was it was. You, did, you did mention that, yeah. You said yeah. it's an amazing coming together of communities. It was, and like they, were, you know, they sang all the songs, they sang Ole, and you know, it was just one of those nights that sort of made the hair stand on the back of your neck, and then people just people mingled afterwards. Like it was that much security there. I'm pretty sure that they thought there was going to be a huge amount. There was the possibility of a huge amount of trouble, but. It wasn't about that. It was about a sporting event, and I think yesterday, and I think the fact that you come in, stood for the national anthem, as well. You know, it says a lot because, you know, definitely there definitely is a softening at the minute, and you know, if we, if the the community in the north has any hope whatsoever, then, you know, Storm needs to get up back up and running. Yeah. And I mean, I've I've lucky enough to have been at a couple of Ulster finals, and they're amazing occasions in and of themselves. I think I've said before that it's one final that say the, if the Connacht final is between Roscommon and Sligo, then you wouldn't see any goal or Mayo people there. I mean, that's a game between Roscommon and Sligo that happens to be a provincial final. Whereas with Ulster, it is a different thing. It's, there's there are people that go to the Ulster final every year because it's the Ulster final, and in that sort of a 
sort of a an atmosphere where like I I the first time I ever covered the Ulster final was on radio with News Talk and I actually interviewed I could have interviewed one person from all nine counties sure. within a fifteen yard walk from the press box because I think I remember that. I think you, you, you I interviewed Banty you. and you did yeah yeah you I went Joe on like a sort of a Formula One yeah. sort of pre race <laughs> grade kind of walk you know but it like it is an unbelievably charged atmosphere of celebration of what it is to be a GA supporter in Ulster and so for her to walk into that sort of a of an atmosphere whether it's an empty political gesture or whether it's uh, you know indicative of a softening as you say it kind of doesn't matter because no. she did it yeah exactly and you say about you know like there was 30,000 people more or less in Clonus yesterday and there was another 20,000 in the streets you know so there was 50,000 people in a small market town in Monaghan you know yesterday and it was it's, look, let's face it, it's pretty it's pretty mad and like we made a diabolical situation with BBC, you know, um a couple of years ago after one of the games to maybe head into for a pint somewhere and uh you know that, that we've never done that since because like you wanna be you wanna be at it fairly early now to to, <laughs> to get to get to the level of some of these guys. But look at that's what it is. It's just it's uh it's an occasion. Uh, you know, I said yesterday what Clonus lacks in uh, corporate hospitality. It certainly makes up just in absolute colour and, and atmosphere. Like, you yeah. know? Okay, well, that's a lovely moment anyway, lovely gesture. Uh, what about on the pitch? Donegal looked pretty good on TV. Um, I mean, they're they're getting more and more buzz about them as the year progresses. All of it justified? Yeah, it was quite lovely as well because there was there was zero there was no major bite to it there was no real nastiness to it because it never got to that stage for Fermanagh everyone you know? was being polite for Arlene was it <laughs> well <laughs> Donegal sort of dampened down the, uh, any expectation that Fermanagh had once Ray McHugh touched the ball after 14 and a half minutes he just basically owned the game for the next 10-15 minutes and that was it, that was enough. You know, I talked last week and I said that about uh, Donegal's movement. It was equally as good yesterday. Um, I don't want to bore I don't want to bore you with this stuff, but I did talk to, um, I do a bit of jogging on it uh, uh, most mornings and the guy who run with it, isn't it? Uh, he was, he was a, um, he was in America on a running scholarship when he was when he was young. Uh, he's done a lot of athletics coaching, and I was saying about that just the Fermanagh players looked as if they were just faster. You know, how do you get players to be faster? He said, like that roughly takes about two years. But he was talking about it was the Donegal players mid range. It's not how you know how how quick because you put it all them players on the lane and there won't be that much distance between any of them. But if you watch Owen Bond Gallagher, and you know he could make ten uh, hundred meter runs, and his man can stay with him for four or five of them. But like he wasn't moving any quicker when he went past six players and popped it off to Kieran Thompson, and he knocked it over the bar. And just the mid range seems to be all like Michael Murphy looks at being f- fantastic, Nick, and they all look to be in fantastic, Nick. I just thought you know uh, athletically and physically yesterday, um, Donegal looked on a different level. I know sometimes we can say that when a team's on top, but I mean you know actually the whole day. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting a warm up as well because they did a hell of a warm up for such a warm day. Uh, they come out at exactly half one, and it was eleven minutes later before Fermanagh came out. And I thought, really smart move on Fermanagh's part, but <laughs> <laughs> didn't work out that way. No, yeah, uh, they have guys Mike who can kick massive points from play from distance, Donegal, and that. <clears throat> I'm just kind of interested to hear what you think of what that does to the field. Like it stretches the distance that you have to cover in a you know sort of a, a blanket defense or in a like a heavily populated defense that we know Fermanagh have. And you know when they start picking points off as they did, it very quickly sort of deflates teams when you can see the quality of the kicker that they have, like Oren McNeilish and Thompson and these guys. They're just wonderful kickers of the ball. Yeah, and especially especially for what Fermanagh were looking to do yesterday, obviously. I mean, 
their whole thing is let's try and restrict guys to those longer range kicks or or something out to the side. And then I think I think it was McNeilish probably got the first one with that left foot big curler from about 40, 45 yards. And that's just that's a heartbreaker for those guys because their whole their whole defensive premises is, is forcing you into taking those. And and when you have guys like Murphy and Thompson, guys that are well able to to kick scores from that kind of range as well as. Jesus McHugh when he dancing around guys like he's a little fly in a in a jam jar. Like if if guys are able to run through you and kick from outside, then then really what you're doing isn't isn't working in any way, shape or form. You gotta take one of them away. Either either stop guys kicking points from longer range or at least don't leave a guy who's who's, you know, five foot three dance past three tackles and, and, and bang a goal into the into the top corner and uh, I, I just thought that yeah it was it was like like she said it was kind of all lovely you know it was all kind of a feel good thing yesterday but there was no real kind of one you know once you got past that first kind of 10 minutes of of it being a little bit of a slog like there was never any doubt about what way the game was going and and Donegal just looked so superior in, in everything they did really. Ah, forget about Donegal. Forget about Dublin. Let's talk about the All Ireland Champions 2018, Mike. We know, we all know. I mean, you might as well. We might as well hand over the trophy now. 32 points against Clare. Only minor quibble is it really with that many points you should be scoring goals. So they come out in the Munster final and put 318 past Cork. Too hot to handle at the moment, Kerry. I don't like your sense of kind of facetiousness there that you're coming out with straight away. Oh, no, 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 it's not. I told you you about two years ago that this was coming and you asked me, you pinned me and you said, when is it coming? And I said, it's it's coming in the next three to five years. And, and maybe a year early, but it's it's uh, it's coming. You can you can see these guys and like Oshin is talking about the kind of athleticism and 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 like the physicality that uh, that you know Donegal are, are bringing to it. And and I just think that's the most impressive thing that these young guys are bringing to the to the Kerry team. They're they're bringing an unbelievable kind of pace um, and just a, a a running power like that that we haven't had for for a number of years and. I mean, I, like typified by this guy Gavin White, like who you know everybody's yeah. talking about Sean O'Shea and and David Clifford and you know Paul Ganey obviously is unbelievable and they're they're really doing really well that side of the ball attacking wise. But the likes of Gavin White, like he he's like he's like Jack McCaffrey literally when he when he burst on the scene with Dublin and and those attacking runs, but also his defensive cover that he's able to offer. I mean, like he he was Rory Dean caused wreck for Cork in the first ten minutes of the game, and it was it was Gavin White they actually put on him to to quieten him down before he got that. Black Hard and and that allows the likes of Paul Murphy on the other side of the field to go in and and, and get forward and dictate play and uh, look it's like Cork were very poor but you know take nothing away from Kerry they're after being really really impressive in the in the first two games you know so we we've seen a lot of forward lines Ushin over the years with really good players um and sometimes you can you can look at a list of names and say right individually they're all really really good players and you know sometimes you know they can combine. But a lot of the time, you know, oftentimes it is just brilliant individual footballers. You give them the ball, they get out of the way. Everyone else gets out of their way. They do the business. When you look at Ganey, James O'Donoghue and David Clifford, they kicked the first three points between them of the game. But also, so often they were the last pass for the other guy to get the score. And, like, that's the scary thing. You know, if you can get selfish bastards of GA forwards to actually be unselfish because the other guys beside them are just as good as they think they are, like that's, you know, you're you're at the way to the races then, really. Yeah, where's it all gone wrong? Yeah, um, <laughs> passing the ball as corner I forward. Know, I know. Uh, well, I think you know you're you're right. They look, you know, uh, they look very streamlined, and I think, to be honest, they can improve because a little bit like um, yourself and Ken were talking about uh, England's World Cup uh, and Belgium's World Cup only starting. Uh, in the knockout stages. Yeah, well, that's what Ken, well, Ken just, for some reason, hasn't been blown away by England, but anyway. <laughs> well, I, I, I wasn't absolutely blown away by Kerry. Yeah. I think um, it's, really, it's really, really difficult. I'm just going to hold fire on them for now because I, I think that, you know, again, what they've been playing against really and truly just isn't up to it. Well, Mike, what do you think? I mean, how much do you have to take into account? It's a strange question. And I asked the exact same question to Ken about Panama. So uh, uh, I jokingly brought up this analogy, but it is how much do you have to take account of how poor Cork were, albeit they started brightly. Yeah, and they were. They were terrible. I mean, they, they, it was so strange. I mean, the one thing you would have hoped for from a, from a Cork point of view is let's get off to a fast start. And, and I mean, they had 2-1 scored 
after whatever it was, you know, nine or ten minutes, and they didn't score again for Jesus a half a week, and 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 you're saying how how can that be from their point of view? But I I just think you know. I just think Kerry are, are right now they're really where they want to be for for this stage in June. While while being sloppy and I mean they probably between between wides and dropping ball into the keeper's hands they probably missed about another twelve or thirteen chances that that another day would easily have gone over the bar. But I, I just think from from after integrating so many young guys into the team both defensively and and in attack to be where you are now putting up the scores you are. But also to be conceding as little as they are is is really encouraging. And and while Clare and Cork are both Division Two teams, and and one you know Clare were third in Division Two, and Cork were were languishing near the bottom of it, they still would have put up more on the scoreboard last year or the previous year against the Kerry defence. And uh, I just think the guys that they have now, with Shawnee Shea and David Clifford starting, both offensively being really good, but in terms of winning the ball back by tackling and and forcing Cork into turnovers. They just look a much, much better unit, much more athletic unit, you know, a much, you know, much more capable of putting up big scores with the likes of James O'Donoghue back in the mix. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's rosy right now. But look, Galway is going to be the big test, obviously, in the Super Ace game and see see exactly where you are. But, you know, I think I, I think there's there's, you know, it's it's a good place to be for Kerry right now. Yeah, I have to say, Mike, as you're describing how well they're going, Murphy's giving it a big thumbs up. And Ushin still, I don't know if I'm reading your look correctly here. Ocean, but you still seem unconvinced. I still think they'll. I still think Kerry look like a team that's going to shoot up a hell of a lot of scores. Mm. Right now, uh, you know they, they may t- change it or tweak it a little bit uh, the next day, but I think they did ship a lot of scores against Galway. I'm still. I'm just not convinced. I'm just not a hundred. I'm just not a hundred percent convinced. I'm actually. I'm not convinced with the goalkeeper. I'm not convinced in the middle of the field either. Are you convinced? I'm convinced with the, with you know how far they come on, how they've integrated those players, and how that's happened so quickly. Uh, how good they they have the pot. Like you're right, they should have scored six thirty, um, and you know you you wouldn't have batted an A lid. But I just think that keeper defensively as a unit and the middle of the field. Are you convinced so. by the dubs yet? They look as if they're going in the right direction. <laughs> do your do your dark horse pick for the other <laughs> ones to watch. They're um, look at nothing's changed really. You know, for the dubs, you know, we haven't heard, we haven't seen, uh, we haven't learned anything different from the weekend. It's interesting that those two games are coming up first, and I like that, like the Galway Kerry uh, game and the Dublin Donegal game because I think. You know, Donegal will give Dublin a test that they haven't had so far. Um, but still, mm. like, and I know, like, it's it's unfair because the the first thing you're doing, you know, with Donegal yesterday is you're thinking, can they beat the Dubs? And realistically, in your head, you're saying no. I'm watching Kerry the other night, and I'm saying realistically, can they beat the Dubs? Doesn't make them bad teams. It just means that you know they're coming up against a team that you know just look a little bit impenetrable at the minute. Mayo, I don't think you describe as impenetrable at, at any time, really, Mike, but it was a very Mayo-ish qualifier performance at the weekend. I, I turned on with Tip a couple of points up at half time. There were three up then with about, what, 20-odd minutes to go? Yeah. And the commentary on Sky was hilarious. It was all the doom and gloom and, you know, this is could this be the end of the road for this team? But and that I'm, was it. That, yeah. that was the game. Like, yeah. as you're watching it, Mike, this, you know, you... you Keep telling yourself, listen, they've been in this position before. You know, it's obviously they know what to do in a situation like this. But that doesn't change the fact that as you're watching it, you're thinking... They might get caught this time. That's like, what I was thinking. They might get caught you know, this time. And like you can keep playing the game, I suppose. But sooner or later, you are going to get caught. Now, as it turns out, you know, they played brilliantly in the last 20 minutes and gave us actually enough of a glimpse to say that they're not, they're not gone from this either. Like when they get their running game going... It's still pretty impressive to watch, but it's you know another sh- injury. Shamey O'Shea gone. You're looking now at a midfield possibly of Aidan O'Shea and Lee Keegan, or Aidan O'Shea and Jermaine O'Connor. You know it's it. The struggle is real, and it has always been real for Mayo, but it just looks very real at the moment. Yeah, and 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 your your big fear for them is just they're going to run out of bodies. I mean they're they're. Like I mean, Tom Parsons is obviously a huge loss, and then you see Shamey O'Shea going down with 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 the shoulder, um, and like. And then Colin Boyle gets black card, and you're saying, "Jesus, if if ever this is the time now for Tipperary, who were really disappointing against Cork, and they're obviously the, you know there's a big kick, and they need to uh, make a big statement in this championship, 
this is the time that they might catch Mayo and get a really big scalp and, and then again they just they grind them down and they turn it around and Dimbra Connor comes in and you know he has a really big influence in the middle of the field and and you're just saying they're they're they just keep doing it and and, and I mean eventually look I, I can't see I can't see a way that they're gonna get through the super eights, you know, down so many bodies. Uh, eventually, it, it has to. It, it's just got to run out. It's inevitable for them at this stage. That I, I just can't see if they if they pick up another injury or two during the Super Eights in the first game or two. I mean, they're they're going to be looking to play thirteen aside or something. They're down so many bodies. So I, I I just can't I can't see them I can't see them getting back to where they where they were last year just because of the pure and utter attrition that's going to come down the tracks in this in these Super Eights as soon as they get there. But can I go back to the point that I made a, a while back in that? You know, we talked about Mayo tactically, uh, and there was a few raised eyebrows when I said I didn't think they were very good tactically. I just think that the weekend sort of proves the point that, you know, for all, you know, Mayo's preparation for that game, best thing they could possibly do is go six or seven points down after 15 or 20 minutes and then just have a go and just play. And that, that that's the only time that you see the best of Mayo is when... The backs are really to the wall, and they just they just go out and they just play. I I, I think the end is coming. I I actually think Kildare will beat them next. Really, because yeah. just in case people haven't heard the qualifier draw, it's Cavan versus Tyrone, Leitrim versus Monaghan, Armagh versus Clare, and Mayo against Kildare. So you could argue that Mayo have missed a couple of the the trickier games there against the likes of Tyrone and Monaghan. But you think Kildare, despite think- their uh, recent championship performances, are. I think they'll have enough. Um, Kildare are at home, I believe. So, um, you know, that's... Home might be Portleash. Even by the time this goes out, we might have an idea of what the venue is, but they're drawing at home. um, I just think that, uh, you know, Kildare seem to be building, seems to be a little bit of confidence uh, back in in the team. Believe it or not, that's a good win for them at the weekend down in Longford. And, like... If you take Tipperary's performance against, um, if you take Tipperary's performance against Cork, and you look at the weekend and how uh, Brian Fox was able to basically dictate to Mayo for 40, 50, 45, 50 minutes of the game before they did anything about it, uh, I actually think I actually I do believe that that Mayo have just I think they just run out of steam. Mike, last word to you on that. Uh, no, I do not subscribe to that opinion. Uh, Tipperary, I would have suggested, were much better than they played against Cork. To be fair, they just never showed up that get that day, and uh, I don't think Kildare have have anywhere near enough to to beat Mayo. I think they'll get over the line there. Okay, Mike Quirk, brilliant stuff. O'Shane, thanks so thanks. much. No matter, guys. First Minister's name, Kieran Murphy, our second captain, and John Henderson, former Kenny and Wicker Hurdler. Thank you both indeed for that. Uh, that's our lot for today. Just one headline the British Prime Minister Theresa May is to meet the Taoiseach and the Kenny in London tomorrow. This morning she's at Stormont meeting Martin McGuinness and uh, also Theresa. Sorry, I've lost that. The First Minister's name, Arlene Foster. Arlene Foster, thank you for that. We just about emerged from that conversation without asking O'Shane about the match that he was begging us begging us Murph to ask about beforehand mm. the Armagh All-Ireland winning team of 2002 yeah. played a charity game on Friday night just gone versus their old enemies the Tyrone All-Ireland winning team of 2003 and Sparks not that many Sparks flew a few no. Sparks flew Most the Sparks coming from Francie Bellew mostly yeah. you won't be surprised to hear <laughs> all played out in uh, spectacularly Warm fashion, by all accounts, with the possible exception of two extremely late tackles on Sean Cavan. <laughs> so, <laughs> one by Justin McNulty, apparently, and the other by the aforementioned Francie Bellew. What so. did Ocean kick? Have you heard? Oh, he he was too shy to tell me, but 5-3. <laughs> five goals, three points. Five goals, three points. Excellent. I mean, maybe I should, you know, double-check this. Journalistically, one should probably make a secondary phone call, but no. Let's just go with that. Five goals, three points. Some news on the venue for the Kildare game? Popped up in conversation there? Oh, yeah. So since we recorded, uh, that's actually been announced as a Crow Park doubleheader okay. in round three of the qualifiers, which is something that we haven't seen in a couple of years, I don't think. So that's with Cavan and Tyrone. Cavan's ground is also under uh, development at the moment, Breffney Park. So it's Mayo against Kildare. There were concerns over the size of Newbridge, 12,000 capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Kildare would bring more than that. Would Between Mayo and Kildare, you'd probably be looking at 24,000, 25,000, two of the best supported counties in the business. So 
Uh, yeah, bring it to Crow Park and see what happens. I mean, it is a bit of a blow for Kildare, though. I mean, there's no other really way to say it no, other than that so losing home advantage is. Yeah, and I wonder, we might have to drag Oshin back in uh, later in the week or before that game to find out if he thinks that changes things at all with regards to Kildare's chances. Because I would have thought Mayo at Croke Park... Yeah, I know they lose all Ireland finals, but they win every other game they play. If, Croke you, Park. if you gave Mayo a choice between McHale Park and Crow Park, they go for Croker ahead of McHale Park. Park. Oh, they? They just, just love being there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, well, I'd be surprised if they mm. even hesitated for a second on that because the record of McHale Park this year has been played for lost four. I think. <laughs> right. Well, certainly they've been losing a lot of games at home. Yeah. All right, Simon's here now, leaping aboard the Irish rugby bandwagon because. Ireland won a series in Australia for the first time in 39 years and Leinster have snapped up the coaching services of one of their most popular ever it's players. It's lack of education or something. That's the man, not bad going. That's for, a lack of respect. Not bad going for the last week in June considering it's not not even rugby season really. Hi Shane. Hey, you doing? Uh, we're going to start maybe with those reports that um, were pretty strong. Reports at this stage of Felipe Contepomi is in as backs coach to replace Gervin Dempsey. What do you make of this? A good move? Um, yeah, well, it looks as if I know it's not quite over the line yet, but it, uh, all indications are that uh, Felipe is going to be back in Leinster. It'll certainly uh, make things a little bit more exciting. Um, and uh, I think, you know, on the, uh, I suppose uh, looking from the outside, it seems like a, a pretty decent appointment. Uh, although, you know, Felipe hasn't had massive success with uh, Argentina in his, uh, in his coaching time. You know, I thought the Leinster were looking towards Isa, which seemed to be maybe a more organic fit. But whether they haven't convinced him to stay or whether they opted for um, Felipe, um, we, we won't know. And that might, you know, may um, come out later, or maybe will never come out. But uh, um, he is a, you know, he's a folk hero in Leinster. Um, but there's a, that's a really, really good job to, to get, and I think. You know, in world rugby, Leinster back coach now is uh, is up there with some of the most prestigious um, jobs in the wor- in the world. Um, you've got a brilliant backline to work with, good talent coming through. You know, the best ten, or in the maybe uh, certainly in the northern hemisphere, maybe in the world. Um, but it'll be interesting. It's demanding as well because there's a lot of big personalities and players who won a lot. Um, and to be successful, you're going to have to continue on to win, and that's what uh, Felipe will have to do. Yeah, it's a, you mentioned there that he hasn't had he hasn't much of a pedigree yet, coaching-wise. And obviously, playing pedigree was there for everyone to see. But even at that, he was uh, he seemed like certainly from the outside a very off the cuff kind of uh, mercurial player, who, uh, the type of player who might necessarily be obvious coaching material. Maybe that's unfair on him. You obviously played with him, so did you see him as a guy who could be a coach? Um, I, I think you're right that he wasn't a particularly, you know, structured uh, ten. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you, you can't be a coach. And people uh, very often look on things in a different way, or they they coach in a very different style than they actually played. Um, but Leinster are very structured um, uh, backline. They're a very structured team. Um, uh, we can see the difference between the Southern Hemisphere and I watched watched a, a lot of the. Um, New Zealand test against France and so the sort of way they play is very based around the individual making the break and then the structure off that whereas um, Ireland and Leinster tend to deconstruct and uh, be thinking about things a number of phases in advance um, you know what I would think would be interesting Leinster have lost a little, a little bit of their sharpness off a first phase um, so you don't see them break down as much op- opposition now there's been a few you know examples of where they have done it but not quite as uh, cutting off you know first phase line out first phase scrum and maybe that's an area that you know Felipe can can um, get Leinster back focused on do you think it matters that Sexton is such a different type of out half to Felipe I mean ultimately a bit of the way you play comes through in your coaching beliefs and Obviously, Sexton took over from Felipe, but in the in in that structure, I mean, Sexton represents that represents that philosophy perfectly, and he executes it. And Felipe was quite different. Do you think that is an issue with a backs coach? Um, it doesn't always. Your style as an uh, as a player doesn't always reflect is not always reflected in your in your coaching philosophy. And there's plenty of examples where we've seen um, maybe quite flamboyant or extravagant players become relatively conservative in the way they coach. Um, what I do see is um, a very collaborative process um, in in the coaching between uh, Felipe when he comes in, between Stuart Lancaster, 
between uh, someone like you know Emmett Farrell who's there and certainly uh, somebody like Johnny Sexton you know it's almost impossible to um, overstate how you know how important he is to Leinster not just as a player but as an intellect off the pitch so I, I think it will be it'll have to be for Felipe uh, given what Leinster have done um, over the last you know couple of years but particularly the last season the success they have um, and what they've been doing and wh- how they've been progressing I think um, he it certainly won't be a case of coming in and you know, changing the philosophy entirely it will be and working with with the coaches and players that are already there, being collaborative and talking about how you can tweak it more than changing a philosophy. Yeah, and the Irish players that he's going to be working with, the Irish internationals, are coming in off the back of a series win in Australia, which was pretty nail-biting in the end, Jane. Yeah, it was. Um, it was kind of a it was kind of a weird game. You know, I wrote about it on Sunday. I thought that Ireland had a you know a game plan figured out the week before about how to beat um, Australia, not comfortably, but you know, they really could figure them out technically as what, what's the best way to beat the Aussies. Uh, for some reason, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't decide to do that. And they went back to a, you know, a more physical, more basic game plan. And uh, you know, that uh, possessions um, controlling um, domination in the first half, really, and, and a kind of a bullying of the um, Australian team. Um, in the second half, they came back into it, Australia, um, I didn't think they played a very smart game plan. I thought their handling was really poor. The skill level was low. But um, Ireland, as they have done right the way through the season, they found a way to win um, based out of heart and character and, and almost a, a muscle memory of how to get over the line in big games. I guess we kind of knew Ireland had heart and character and an ability to get over teams in tight finishes. So are you taking more satisfaction from the series win, the fact that it's away from home, the fact that we have we never really do that, as opposed to the actual style of play or what we might have learned about certain players or structures? Yeah, um, a bit of both, because I thought the second test was really uh, impressive and um, I thought it was a, a movement on from where we'd been playing almost um, for the entire season, maybe excluding the England game. thought it was really ambitious. It was smart. Players were comfortable in the system. Um, and it paid, uh, you know, there was, there was dividends for it. Um, and we, I do, you know, we're very aware that all these players are you know, bursting with character. Um, and they, they know how to win. They know how to get uh, people over the... Um, over the gain line, so or sorry, over the finish line, and and win tournaments and win matches. Um, I think it was really important for us to win this series in Australia. Look at things, uh, bigger picture. Uh, it was even better. We came back from one nil down, um, but we have an incredible um, milestone and marker now um, to spring forward for, which is going to be something that could be the most important year in in Irish rugby history. Um, so. I think we learned both. We 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 re- it was reinforced that you know we could win in the Southern Hemisphere uh, in their own backyard um, and you, you sort of use heart and and um, you know some level of skill to get over. But also in that second test, I thought we saw we can play at a different level, and maybe that might be the most important thing that we we take from this series that um, we don't need to limit ourselves. And when we, you know, do try something else, um, you know, we can get rewarded for it. We don't need to be a, a box-kicking team out of defence. We don't need to be a runner-off nine uh, attacking team through phase. Uh, we have more strings for our bow, and we've got plenty of players um, to, you know, to implement a, almost any game plan we want. It's maybe too blunt a measurement to say that in the first and third tests when Ireland played a more limited game plan, Gary Ringrose... Um, wasn't involved and it's strange saying this because I thought Bundy Aki was probably Ireland's best player along with maybe CJ Stander but they they ultimately just looked less creative with Ringrose out of the team uh, and it looked really clear the way Ringrose played that in the second test if he's not well A should he always be involved in the centre I think the answer to that's pretty obvious I think you'll probably say yes to that but if he isn't involved if he's injured and we end up with this situation say in a World Cup quarter final. Do we then need some other playmaker at 15 or on the wings um, to sort of compensate for that loss? And we do, I think. I, I think not in every game, but um, if we were to miss, uh, if we were to uh, not have him starting in a 
crucial game near the end against one of the heavyweights, I think uh, it does limit our game, and I'd be concerned about that. Um, how much time we've got to experiment with another, you know, a ball playing uh, centre, and I think it's not so much just that um, you know Henshaw goes into the 13 position. Yeah, that's one element of it, but it, you're right about Bundiaki and and. He his skill set is you know is is kind of unique to him and it's a, just a different type of skill set than um, than I think we need uh, with Ireland. I think in many many games he'll be enough and he'll get you over the line and he'll do fantastic things. Um, but to get back to the point that I made early on about the sort of individual versus uh, the, you know, the, the Irish structured game that we play. We are that sort of a structured team. We're not a reactive to a, an individual making, you know, n- making a bus and doing one piece of magic and then um, reacting off that. We, we uh, deconstruct an opposition. And we, to do that, we do it be- better when we have a ball player 12. And he's not a ball player. He's a, you know, a power uh, athlete. He's an, a serial offloader. But and you know and there's a way to play with that. But I don't think when we have them, we play to those strengths. We actually uh, sometimes underutilize them. So unless we're going to change that very much, um, I think we do need to look at, at somebody else and what happens if, sorry, if Ringrose goes out or what happens if uh, Henshaw actually goes out and we have to mix up the mix up the um, the ten and twelve combination. And uh, um, I, I'm sort of ploughing a lone furrow here, but <laughs> I'd like—I'd uh, really like to see Joey Carberry. Keep plugging away there, Shane. Well. Keep plugging away. <laughs> yeah, I'd, l- I'd love to see it, and I think um, we've seen when you know, I, I can see Henshaw, you know, evolving his game. I'm not sure if if uh, Bundyaki can evolve his game like that. I think his passing game isn't great, actually, especially uh, left to right. Um, so if there was opportunity to see a different type of midfield um, and Joey Carberry being given some game time at 12. I don't think uh, necessarily it's it, it's uh, the perfect um, midfield for Ireland. And I think that the Henshaw and Ringrose uh, combination uh, would be very difficult to break them up. And I think they've been excellent when they've played together. But if one of those two goes down, I think I'd like to see our, our centres having a little bit more. I think sometimes the concern um, when you're watching Ireland is you think the barometer is always New Zealand and especially when they play on the TV just before Ireland play Australia, you're sort of wondering, well, that's the level, certainly with backline play or with explosiveness that we'd have to reach if we were to win a World Cup. And I think that is actually the bar now for Ireland because they've done pretty much everything else and New Zealand are the one team we'd still fear. And in the way they played in the first and third tests, I would say there's no way we'd beat New Zealand. And yet when Joe Schmidt's Ireland play New Zealand, they always look like they could easily win it. We, it's like we change a little bit for the New Zealand games. And conceivably, we could have beaten them two or three times out of the last three times that we played them. Do you think watching Ireland in the Six Nations and then saying the first and third tests against Australia, that would make you really worried that we, there's no chance of us beating New Zealand? Or do you think the dynamic completely changes when Schmidt prepares for New Zealand? Uh, yeah, I think things change quite a bit with, with New Zealand. What we have to be really careful about, and it's interesting you bring up what, watching the, um, the game beforehand, we don't need to mimic what New Zealand do. Our play is, is very different. Our style is different. And when, once we start getting into that mimicking what New Zealand do, and this maybe there's a reflection here about you know having Bundyaki in a uh, in a twelve. Once we um, mimic them, I think we move away from what makes Ireland excellent, and um, and that is this you know the structural deconstruction of of a team, if that makes sense. Um, so we have to be you know we have to be careful to to follow through what with what we're good at and bring the elements of northern hemisphere game that um that set us apart and make us unique and challenge new zealand because you know trying to do what new zealand do they're going to do that better we got to figure out another way to do it and that's why again i was really impressed about the during the second test it looked like Right, we're going to have to, we we take a bit more chance. We you know we trust our players. There's a higher risk involved in it, but it worked really well. And that's one element of it. We see another element in what 
the Lions did uh, to New Zealand when they drew the series, and particularly in the last two tests when uh, Sexton was in situ at 10. I think we don't have to be worried about the skill level, uh, our skill level going up against New Zealand. Their skill set is different, but ours, uh, I thought we really held our own from a technical perspective and uh, made them feel uncomfortable about the way they had to defend because we were doing something different and something that they're not used to defending against. I think we have to reiterate that and build on that um, type of play. If we do what will probably see us uh, have success in the autumn and have a large degree of success in the Six Nations and play the type of game plan we saw in the first and third tests against Australia, I just don't think we're preparing ourselves as well as we can um, to win a World Cup. All right. Uh, I did want to ask you, Shane, about the Israel Falau, Peter Mahoney incidents. There were a few of these where Falau appeared to be attacking the ball but took Peter Mahoney out. He was yellow carded for one of the incidents. This is when Peter Mahoney was being lifted quite high in, in all cases, really. Uh, so there's a yellow card for one of the incidents. Separate, separately, he was cited for another one. So that's as we record, that's in the hands of the disciplinary people. Yeah, the third one, he didn't do anything at all. Yeah, um, but... Uh, but all three looked really dangerous, ultimately, for Peter Manny. Yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a theme of the game. Interestingly, though, I saw Murray Kinsler, for example, says that it, the yellow card was harsh, that O'Mahony being one man lifted is what puts him in such a dangerous position. Similarly, Rory O'Connor said Israel Folau getting punished for dangerous play, but it was a superb piece of athleticism against a player who was so high in the air because he's being lifted. The lift is just as dangerous as playing him in the air. Is that something that rugby people have to, uh, rugby officials have to have a look at? Um, maybe the, the, the lifting. I, I said similarly um, on the TV on uh, in the morning of the game that um, he's in a very Peter O'Mahony's in a very vulnerable position, especially with just one lifter. Um, and then you're up against someone like Israel Falau, who is propelling himself that high, um, which is a natural movement as opposed to being lifted, which is an unnatural movement. Mm. And I would want to, I feel that like you shouldn't be penalizing the person who's doing the natural movement. And if there is a clash in the air, that's not illegal. Uh, you're allowed to have a clash in the air if both players are going for the ball. And um, and you can't remove that from um, from from rugby. Otherwise, you'll ne- you won't have contested kicks. So um, I, there is a vulnerability uh, to Peter Mann. He took a couple of bad spills, and the fact that he was injured is pretty horrific as well. Um, but I, I don't think what we want to do is limit the natural um, you know, sort of genius that is, uh, is uh, players like Israel Falau from producing a very natural movement and winning the ball each time. He was the one who was up there first. He was the one who, who actually got the tap back on each occasion. There was a clash in the air and they both came down. But because Peter was being lifted um, at the time, he was in a very vulnerable position and, and was toppled end over end. If he's not being lifted, I don't think, and there's a clash in midair, one, I don't think he gets as high as Israel Folau and then he's never going to be flipped over and it, it looks so sort of catastrophic as it was. So um, I would, you know, I, I like to see that sort of incredible athleticism and I don't want it um, sort of uh, ruled out of, of future internationals because of, um, you know this this incident. I tweeted something about Johnny Sexton's winning penalty kick or the insurance kick, I suppose, and somebody got back to me saying, "I appreciate that you're trying to give the impression that you give a shit about the rugby at this time. Great professionalism on your behalf." But I would say to that tweeter, "This is a huge deal. We've won a series in Australia, and it's um, next stop World Cup 2019." Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Emil. In the final round in a game. And oh, oh, what about that? Send him off! Send the dirty get off! Get him off the field! That was diabolical! Get him off the field! That's just typical of what he is! Get him walking! They don't like it! Walking, come back in, got it bottle! If you've got it bottle, Campbell, it should walk! That was absolutely diabolical! That should be sent off! He's going to be yellow card. A gasp. Oh, what about that? Send him off. Send the dirty guys off. You'll ball this get, Campbell. A gasp. A gasp.
Mikael was it as your side. Oh, Steve Beck, Steve. Oh, that's his head. What a magnificent try. Something up yours. He's the best cop in the world. Never mind anybody else. There's a little bit of griping. I've come to learn from the Australian commentators about illegal Irish tactics during that third test. And listener discretion might be advised for this upcoming clip. Any particularly sensitive ears should be covered or just turned far enough away from the podcasting <laughs> device so they don't hear this vicious attack. I think the ears know what you're talking about. Ob. By Phil Cairns, Aussie rugby legend. He just took things a bit too far. Again, the referee's got to hurry the game up. He, he can't just let the Irish slow it down. I think them just like Brown's cows. Yeah. Wait. Fiddly dee, fiddly dee, fiddly dee, potato. Out the back there, having their own little chat. Hey, in the words of the great man, cheap shot. That is a cheap shot. And <laughs> I've only just potatoes, so we're still very yeah. delicate about the well, 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 we are, actually, it turns out. There's a lot of people getting very, very irate. It's a scammy Irish. Yeah. Uh, if our delicate uh, national uh, sense of well-being has been hit, it, it hit below the uh, the bowl line uh, as a result of this particular comment, I think we're all in trouble. I'm having a buzz floating around. Anyone wants to not give me a shell? Folks, four games every day from Monday to Thursday in the World Cup this week. It's the, they're the group deciders, and a load of these groups are still right up in the air. We are going to be here all week talking about them. Ken is going to be reporting from Russia. We've got a load of great contributors from around the globe. All we need is you. You may as well join us, secondcaptains.com. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Simon. I like you. I like your style. Thanks, Murad. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.